You're listening to TIP. We have a very special guest today, and that is Dr. Graham Forster. Graham is the managing director of Orbis, which currently manages around $30 billion. Graham attained a master's in mathematics from Oxford and a PhD in mathematical epidemiology and economics from Cambridge. In this episode, you will learn Graham's journey from mathematics to value investing, exploring legendary quant investors like Jim Simons along the way. How Orbis's founder, billionaire Alan Gray's investing flexibility led to his success. How Graham balances the macro with a bottoms-up approach. A thesis which Graham calls the great misallocation. How good and cheap companies can outperform, especially during bear markets, and a whole lot more. Orbis is a global investment management firm, but they're not big self-promoters. So you won't find many interviews with someone like Graham. We're lucky to have him and it was a delightful discussion. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Graham Forrester. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And like I said at the top, I am here with Graham Forster from Orbis. Graham, as far as I can tell, you don't do many of these, so I am very excited to have you and getting the word out about you and Orbis and what you guys are doing because it's really interesting. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Trey. It's, uh, it's good to be here. You're right. We don't do many of these, so it's exciting for me as well. I wanted to start off here by talking a little bit about you personally and then talking a bit about what you do at Orbis, but I find your background pretty interesting. You got your master's in mathematics from Oxford, your PhD from Cambridge. I'm kind of just genuinely curious about your interest in mathematics and how that ultimately led you to investing. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to go down the academic route. It wasn't until really my second year doing a PhD that I kind of wavered on that. And the reason was really that I'd always seen academia as a meritocratic endeavor where you know, you are doing the noble thing, you know, analyzing things that really matter. Um, in reality, I, I think actually it was, I'm, I don't want to disparage the academic field. I think it lost its way a little bit in the sense that as it got bigger, it grew more bureaucratic and the allocation of funding in the academic sphere becomes difficult the more niche you become. Um, so, you know, you, as you get more specialists, which you, is, is inevitable in academia because you're going deeper and deeper, therefore you need to be more and more narrow. Uh, it becomes more difficult for people who are allocating funding to understand where their money's going because they don't understand the science itself. And so it's really hard to understand the the benefit of one project versus another, and it ends up being very political. Um, I started to realize this in the second year of a PhD. At the same time, I was kind of you know, uh, sort of exploring what to do next, and I came across a few books. So, you know, they've got a, good, a lot of good secondhand bookstores in Cambridge. Uh, if you ever go, it's a wonderful place to walk around and explore um, bookstores. Even though you can get everything digitally nowadays, it's nice to walk around an old crusty bookstore. And uh, so I came across two, two books. One was by a guy called David Schlansky. I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it was a yellow book, I remember. It's called The Theory of Poker. And, you know, I read that book so much, it was all tattered, but um, even more tattered than it was when I bought it. So that, you know, the poker is in all of its forms, hold them, you know, stud, draw, is um, the, the art form of making decisions under uncertainty. And that was utterly fascinating to me. 
in the sense that you can use mathematical ability, you can use you know, psychology, and it's just and it's risk taking decision making with information you don't have. You have to infer, and you have to recognize that the world is an inherently uncertain. And this is even in, this is a closed closed system of the game. And so I got the book and I started playing. Which, you know, that was one element of okay, what is something that's quite like this? How can I capture the essence of this, but do something a little bit more reputable <laughs> or professional? And so that was one. And another book that, that sort of popped out of the bookshelf around that time, which was, I think had been written in 2001. I don't know why I picked it up, but it was a book by uh, Taleb, who's now very well known uh, as an author and a thinker. And whatever you may think of him, he did write some sensible things. And the book I picked up at that time was called Fooled by Randomness, I recall. And it, that really uh, set something off in my mind, a little bit like I was listening to some of your podcasts, which are really great. And there's one you're talking about, a chap called Guy Spear, who I do, I do not know. I've not studied you know, his work or his track record. But uh, you know, it's something he said or you said about him was that when he discovered value investing, it was like a light went on in his mind. Very similar for me, but you know, even earlier in the sense that it was, a, it was reading this book, uh, which is about the role of stochasticity in our lives um, and how you know, risk is many more things can happen than will happen. And this is for every decision we make as humans. And, you know, I've always had the sense, always had the sense that we think deterministic, uh, you know, the, the world is inherently stochastic, but people think deterministically. You know, when I was growing up, I used to watch football matches. I was a big Wrexham fan and a Manchester United fan. And when Manchester United won 1-0, they were the greatest team on the planet and they could do no wrong. And it could have been the, just the luckiest goal, you know, they ever scored. And then in, next week they lose 1-0. You know, sack the manager, get rid of half players. Uh, just the bipolar nature and and the misunderstanding of us, effectively what is stochasticity, and and sort of like bleeding deterministic thinking on top of that is just pervasive in uh, how humans work, how human brains work. And so, you know, what Taleb did was sort of break down that and just talk about how, in reality, we live in a very stochastic world. And of course, that is very kind of related to poker. Many more things can happen. You're making decisions that are probabilistic. You're not making decisions. You know, there is going to be an outcome. There's going to be a result, right? But that's not the point. The point is the decision you make is uh, needs to be you know, on, on the. It's, it's the basis of how good is that decision in probability space rather than in outcome space, and that's very very aligned with investment decision making, and that's sort of what brought me to thinking about the investment world. I love that idea about imperfect information, what you're kind of describing there earlier. I think one interesting thing about being a, a leader or a director, of it, a lot of people look to you for perfect information, but we're all operating off of imperfect information, but need to be making the best decisions in light of that. So that's fascinating, right? Because I mean, you, I speak to a lot of managers of big businesses and you know, you almost look, I almost look for uncertainty in there. You know, are they, what are they saying? How confident are they? Are they definitive? This is going to happen. I'm, you know, that's going to happen. Or are they displaying humility and uncertainty and recognizing that the world is inherently uncertain, and therefore, you know, they they're building that into their business. So they build, you know, a degree of cautiousness. And you see a range, and, and a lot of the kind of CEOs in the world are a little bit semi-psychotic. You know, they have that that uber external personality of they've got to project, and like you can see why, right? They have to project that determinism. They have to project that strength, that certainty, because that's, you know, almost is perceived that, that you bring people with you if you have that level of confidence and conviction. 
but that might not be, you know, the right way to run the business. So, you know, you have to balance up the two. One of my favorite poker quotes from Buffett, or might have been Bridge or whatever he was referring to at the time, but it's, if you can't uh, spot the patsy in the first 20 minutes at the table, then you are at the patsy. And I, right. I find that so interesting with investing as well, because as I'm initiating, you know, a, a, an investment, my last thought that goes through my mind is who's on the other side of this? <laughs> Am I the patsy on this side of the trade and, and really questioning yourself on that? And uh, it brings me to this idea, what you're referring to with poker about position sizing and and uh, reading from Manish Pabra, who I think has since walked away from this idea of using the Kelly formula, using it in, in terms of investing, borrowing it from poker. Curious to know how you look at position sizing once you found a good investment and do you use any kind of formulaic approach? Yeah, so I'd love to say that I do um, because I'm a big fan of the Kelly criterion, which is essentially edge over odds, you know, what odds you're getting versus the edge that you have, which is a concept using gambling. But the bet, the, you know, the way where that works well is in binary bets. You either win or you lose. Um, and that's, that's the kind of the core of, of where it was developed. And if you have those binary situations where you win or you lose and you know the odds and then, you, but you, you also, that's the odds is what you've given. That's basically the price that you're given, but you also have a, a differentiated view, your edge. You think the odds are actually this because the world is stochastic. Many things can happen. And therefore, you know, the, and when those two things differ, that's where, you know, if you, if the odds you're getting are much better than you think is in, in reality should be, then you, the Kelly criterion gives you how much of your total wealth can you put into this single position, this single bet. And it works very well with binary and that can be shown mathematically. In reality, if you are running a betting strategy, you know, you need to know your edge with pretty good accuracy to implement this well. And that's difficult, right? And we all fool ourselves. I put the odd wager on a sports game and fool myself into thinking I'm an expert in <laughs> and uh, what you know what the outcome might be, but that's one difficulty. Right? You have to you have to get an idea of your edge. In investing in portfolio management and scaling a position, it's doubly difficult because it's not a binary outcome. There's a whole range of outcomes, right? You could generate a ten percent return or twenty percent, etc. So you have uh, basically a probability distribution in there. But what you can do is use the concept or the principle of the Kelly criterion, and that is effectively, you know, to your point around am I the patsy at the table? What is the, you know, the, the equivalent of that in the investment world would be, what is my differentiated view here? What do I think about this that other people are perhaps don't understand? Or you know, have I turned the problem on its head and thinking about it in a different way? And you know, if you can point to a situation where you feel like you have a very tangible, differentiated view, and you, you're sort of on the basis of that, your intrinsic value of the business is that much higher than the market price and you know, you have conviction in that. So the range of outcomes is narrow and that's a big position. So I tend to think of positions in those terms. Is your discount intrinsic value large? Is your distribution of outcomes narrow? It could be up to a 10% position and you scale down from there. And then the outcome is the portfolio. So it's very much a bottom approach. Um, the only other element to that is correlation across the different positions. So that's, you know, that's your broader risk management framework comes in. Determining your edge is so much easier said than done. And so I'm just really curious to know, maybe an example, I don't know if you can refer to an actual investment or, or a recent example of this, but or just a general example, but I wouldn't know the first place to start as far as calculating my edge in something. So I'm just, could you give us an idea of if you're starting from scratch like me, where would you even begin to look to determine your edge? 
So it's hard. And, and a lot of people, I would start out by saying a lot of people have a, a different approaches to how they go about investing. And I think the more I spend time in this field, the more you recognize that somebody's approach has to be tailored to their character. And this kind of manifests in different ways, but uh, you know, we, we could have this whole discussion around what character is and, and different personality types and how they evolve and whether they're kind of like rigid or whether people can be flexible within that. And I think you know that all of those things are interesting, but I think it comes down to yeah, you know what what you're good at, what you feel your strengths are, and, and really sort of pushing on those strengths. There's this narrative around becoming a well-rounded individual. I think in investing, it helps to be pointy. It helps to have really sort of sharp edges and really leveraging on those things that you really do well. And then you can find those instances of, actually, because you know my mind works in this way, I can think of this particular situation differently to the, you know, you kind of, but everyone has a different way of thinking. I work with people here who are excellent at looking at things differently. So that people, there's a, there's a narrative, right? it can be even like an Amazon or a Google or, you know, and they look at that business and say, well, okay, this is how the market sees it, but actually this is how I see it. A good example a few years ago, if I can remember this correctly, because I'm going back sort of 10 years or so, was, you know, Amazon was viewed a certain way and that the, the issue was always, well, they don't make any money, right? They don't make any money. They're growing very quickly, right? That was, this was 10 years. So, I mean, this was a trillion dollars ago in terms of market cap. And, uh, you know, the narrative here that we developed was, um, that's true. But I mean, you have to look at the way that, that they account for certain things. So if you are building a, a retail e-com network, how do you, you know, how should you account for your marketing expense? Because, you know, marketing is typically expensed. If you were a, a, a store on the high street, you definitely expense your marketing, right? Because it's like, yeah, you're just putting it out there and hoping you can get some people through the door. If you're an online platform and you, you know, you're spending money on marketing, bring people in and then they sign up and then they you know, get Amazon Prime and then they're kind of part of your network and they're sticky. So is your marketing an expense or should it be capitalized? Right? Is it something that's an investment and it's going to endure over long periods of time? Yeah, so I think, I mean, that's more of a common narrative now, but that wasn't how the business was thought about historically. If you look at it that way, actually, they're earning a lot more money than people thought they were earning. You know, so it's a different ways. You know, people have different skill sets in what they look for. Uh, but that edge, you know, it typically comes in the form of trying to understanding the news flow, how people think about something. And then, you know, how do I think about it? Kind of coming at it from a different perspective. That's one way. Another way is just to value a business, just pure, good old, you know, what, what are the pieces of the business worth? Right, that's the more mechanical way to do it, and then what you you can do that for a lot of different businesses, and you find maybe four or five of a hundred look like they're very very discounted, and then you can sort of say, well, why why am I getting this valuation and then and but the price this way? What's the narrative? And then you can sort of say, well, do I disagree with that? And so getting to the why is, I think you know you can do it in in a few different ways. I'm curious to know if your background provided any edge, you know, as we went through this global pandemic and your, your expertise on just understanding the compounding of nature of, of how those things can unfold. Were you looking into things? I mean, there was a lot of talk around the vaccine companies at that time, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, all these companies that how they were going to potentially capitalize on this, you know, if you're looking at in that light, 
did that become an area of interest to you as far as and providing you any sort of edge when you were looking at investments? So, I mean, this is why investing is endlessly fascinating, right? One minute you're looking at Amazon, the next minute you're looking at the shipping business, the next you're looking at a global pandemic. And how do you approach global pandemic, you know, in terms of your investment strategy? And we are very long-term thinkers. We don't like thinking in terms of what's happening in the short term. A pandemic we know will come and it will go, but it can be very damaging. So the way we approached it was to try to model it, which like, I mean, I guess everyone else was trying to do, you know, it's cut all over Twitter. Everyone had their own sort of, uh, but what they had, there was one nice bit of clean data that was coming out early in the pandemic, which was from the, uh, the cruise ship sitting off the coast of Hong Kong somewhere, which they wouldn't let back in. And the nice thing about the cruise ship was you, you, you knew exactly who was on board. You knew how many people got infected. You knew the demographics, roughly. They didn't tell you that, but it's a cruise ship, so you can infer the demographics. And you knew, you know, the, sadly, the mortality rate of that ship you know, over the life of the, the infection as it went through. So we did a fair amount of work on trying to model. Effectively, the key thing was not necessarily the rate of spread. The rate of spread looked fairly aggressive, fairly obviously aggressive. Um, but the key thing was the how uh, deadly was the virus. And we could pick that up. It's very hard to pick up from Wuhan. It was hard to pick up as it sort of spread into different bits of Asia and into Italy. Um, but it was, it was easier to do if you had that closed system. So with that data, we sort of came with up to a sort of mortality rate of around 1% within that population, which was, it was skewed old, but it was a very high, you know, mortality rate, very high versus, uh, you know, your seasonal flu at, at half a percent in a really bad year. So 20 times as bad as a really bad flu. So that, that was a good sign of, you know, let's do something. Um, where we kind of fell down was how aggressively we did something. And, you know, because it wasn't just the disease that you had to guess, it was also the response because it wasn't really the disease that necessarily caused the economic disruption. It was the response of governments. And so that's the piece. We didn't think it was possible that they would go as far as they did to close down uh, you know, the uh, all sorts of global. And, and Sweden, of all countries, was the most open, uh, you know, which was bizarre to them. So how it, it just sort of, again, back to Taleb, it shows how unpredictable events are, number one, distribution of outcomes. And even if you get one thing right, you need to get the next thing right. And, next, and, and then the uncertainty compounds get this very, very broad range of outcomes. And so that, you know, hence why you need a reasonably diversified portfolio, you need to take a long-term view. And so we spent a lot of our time modeling that, made some changes in the portfolio, but got the response wrong, governments around the world. And then by the time we saw that response, it was almost kind of too late. It was getting impounded in stock prices to an extreme degree. The, the positive around that period was in any panic, in any panic, you see enormous dislocations in markets. You see mispricings to the extreme. You know, all of that efficient market hypothesis stuff goes completely out of the window. If you ever believed in anything like that, right through those periods, you get these enormous dislocations. So while it was a really difficult period personally and for, you know, for all of society, um, it was a very ripe period for investing because you had such meaningful mispricings. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Where did you tend to focus your attention in any particular industry You know, at that time? I'm just kind of curious where your thought process took you as far as, okay, with all this, that directs me to where? Yeah, well, I mean, there was already a meaningful dislocation before COVID within the market. And it fell along the lines of real economy businesses versus digital economy, because, you know, we've been through this long period. I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's a long period of very, very low rates, low term premium. Um, and that, that led to this big, large dislocation. And so when the, you know, the pandemic was interesting because it was the perfect storm for businesses that were already very discounted, you know, your energy businesses, your metals, your industrial businesses, your anything that was an old economy or low growth typically was kind of linked to the real economy. And when the real economy closed down, you know, the, not only did their earnings go away, some of their revenues went away. Yeah. You know, we own Rolls-Royce, the engine manufacturer. They make money on planes flying around the world per hour. When all the planes stopped flying around the world, they don't have any revenue. It wasn't even in any of their risk models that this could possibly happen ever. Or hours. And so, you know, what do we do? What did we spend our time doing through that period? We spent our time trying to understand the resiliency 
of businesses, how long could they last if the economy stayed shut? And you know, what was their kind of recovery potential? If you like, so the price you're paying for the risk you're taking in terms of that, the longevity of the shut of the of the lockdown versus the upside. So again, you know, your probability distribution had gone wider, fatter tails, uh, but there were these big, big dislocations. So we were just going through business by business, underwriting the existing businesses we held, rapidly going through a lot of other stuff that was down a lot. You know, mostly we're looking at aerospace stuff. We were looking in the energy space. You know, oil went negative, like uh, incredible period. Uh, you know, the, the likes of uh, Glencore, which is a big commodity trading business, was falling. And that was interesting because we thought, you know, they were primed to make a lot of money out of the volatility of commodities around the world. You know, they were the few, one of the few companies that could store the oil on the ships that was being sort of pushed out of the of Texas and and there was nowhere for it to go, which is why it went negative. And you know, so Glencore could just buy that or even get paid for it to take it, store it on these big ships that they'd, they'd hired, which, um, you know, so you had, which was actually getting expensive renting these ships and the share price was down. So it was actually, you know, it seemed like a very positive development in certain companies when, uh, and, and the share price prices weren't reflecting that. And there was a lot of instances of that ilk during that period. That's fascinating. You mentioned Alan Gray earlier, the sister company to Orbis, but founder of both companies is billionaire Alan Gray. And I'm kind of curious what it's like to work under someone like Alan and what you've come to learn about him and what has made him successful in building this massive multiple businesses with offices all over the world. Yeah. I mean, Alan was extraordinary. So he, he started out his career in the US, Fidelity. I think he was at Harvard Business School before that. He's from South Africa. Uh, so he came kind of over in, the, in this kind of uh, rich period of uh, stock picking, especially at Fidelity right, through the 60s and the 70s. That was where place to be, you know, working with some of the well-known names coming out of that era. But, you know, once he had developed his you know, skill set, his, um, his style, if you like, as an intrinsic value focused investor, you know, his mission really was to take that back uh, to South Africa where the investment landscape, as you can imagine, was incredibly inefficient, massive opportunities for a value investor um, in a market like that at that time. And also, not just from the stock picking perspective, from the perspective of building a business where most of the asset managers, well, there were no asset managers at that time. Your, your assets were managed by insurance companies and those products were sold. Going back to that notion of you know, uh, investment products should be bought are not sold, they should be bought on their merits. Since so, you know, his theory was he could start investing, you know, with a few of his friends, some money, his money, and build a track record in a market that was very inefficient. And incidentally, starting in 1973, which if you recall was the peak of the Nifty 50 bubble in the US, of course, markets weren't quite as global then as they are now. You know, today we see very similar dynamics across all markets. Back then it wasn't quite like that. But again, you know, and if big inefficient market in the US led to a, even bigger inefficiencies in South Africa. Um, a great period to start as a bottom-up intrinsic value focused investor. And you know, they over 50 years, which you know took Alan was running that firm up until 1990 when he left to found Orbis, which is a, basically the global equivalent to doing exactly the same thing, same philosophy, same process. Since 1973, to today, so it's the 50th anniversary. Alan, you know, not many investment firms last that long. Over multiple generations of stock pickers and, and chief investment officers, 
they've delivered around six, I think six or seven percent gross alpha in US dollars, I think around 16% a year over 50 years. So $10,000 invested would be, I think, calculating it around 16 million or something today, just absurd wealth creation. And, you know, the two things number one, edge to deliver the great returns. Number two, you need longevity because time is the other secret. I'm not talking about Warren Buffett. I think the statistic is 90% of his wealth came after his retire, his official retirement age, age of 65. Uh, it's longevity that's key. And it's and if you can deliver excess returns over very long periods of time, you get these extraordinary results. And you know, so you hugely inspiring in the way he went about things. In terms of his as him as an investor, I worked with him in Bermuda here for a good few years. And you know, what mostly stood out was the flexibility he had. You know, he could look at a lot of different businesses, a lot of different industries. You couldn't really pin him down. Was he a value investor? Not really. Was he a growth investor? Not really. Was he kind of event driven? Not really. Did he put a lot of weight on this factor or that factor, you know, management or not really, right? He was very flexible in, in the way he thought. And, you know, I think that's absolutely critical and it's just lost today, especially, you know, you go through these periods like the last 10 years where everything's been about compounding, compounding, compounding. Find the next great compounder, find the next, you know, Amazon. <laughs> Pretty difficult to do. But if you have that mindset of this is how you invest, you need a great management team. You need, they need to be able to invest a high rate of return, right? But if that's your narrative, that's fine. But you cut off a lot of potential ideas in the world because there's only, only, you know, a subset of companies that fit that narrative. If you just go for companies that have great management teams, it's only a subset. If you just go for companies that have uh, you know a net net balance sheet versus a price you pay. You basically find nothing. Maybe a few things in Japan and Korea. Uh, so if you only have the, those specific things that you look for, you know you cut down your opportunities set massively. And inefficiencies generally are quite hard to find. Therefore, you need a big wide opportunity set. So it's much better to be flexible. It's much better to have a very open mind, an open mindset. I care about intrinsic value. I will buy the highest growth stock in the world if it's priced below intrinsic value, and vice versa. And that's what Alan was like. He was all over the shop. And so it's great, you know, the, the flexibility he had and I learned an awful lot from. That's really interesting because I think where people run into trouble is when they take these methods or strategies or philosophies and turn them actually into their religion, right? I mean, Buffett himself, as you kind of highlighted there, who unbelievably, by the way, I think it's more like 99% after his retirement oh, right. age of his wealth, which is, which is just, you know, hard to wrap your head around. But I, I remember he said he's not a value investor. He's just an investor, right? He didn't want to put a label on it because it's just about laying out capital today to get more in the future. And so I find that really interesting. And, and it makes me kind of curious about you as well, given your background and being having that flexibility. Because when I looked you up, what came to my mind was someone more like Jim Simons, who takes his mathematical background and turn it into what, probably the most successful hedge fund ever in terms of performance, but again, is not so much the value investor type who lets things compound. It's more quant driven in and out and actually keeps the fund size quite small intentionally. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that style of investing versus value investing and kind of how you found your path. It's a good question, but you know, early on, I would have said maybe a more quantitative approach was right given my background. And I looked into that and I looked into Jim Simons. And I was at, you know, there was a book written about him recently, wasn't there? It was quite a well-written book and fascinating 
his uh, his path through you know to, that uh, that fund and, and founding Renaissance. And interesting that he was quite a fundamental investor himself as well, on and off, despite his background. Um, what put me off from a more a pure quantitative endeavor was two things. Number one, I actually think, and this has been very, this has hit home over the last few years, especially that you need, it's a societal good to have active, intrinsic value focused investors, very, very active in markets. It's a societal good. And it's almost like, you know, it's almost a really sort of negative thing to say because of the negative press that finance has, has had over the last sort of two decades or more. But I think it is critical because if prices get out of line with the underlying value and underlying dynamics of businesses or commodities, then you get huge misallocation of capital because decisions are made on prices. Prices are the key signal of the economy. And so I, th- I think there's a, yeah, again, it's going to sound ridiculous, there's an altruistic element to investing. And I think we've lost that. Right? When I joined Orbis 2006-ish, there was a very active active management scene. And it was coming out of that 2000 to 2006 period where a lot of active managers did very well because there was you know, a big dislocation in the market that closed. Um, but then over the last 15 years, that's kind of gone away. Passives have come up. There's fewer analysts on, on company calls. I think there's fewer people doing what we do. And so that was, that entered into my mind. If you're a quant investor, you, you know, there's an argument that you're improving efficiency, but you're not really, un- you're not investing like you're buying a portion of a business. You're not really understanding the fundamentals of that business. It's, it's signals driven. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it quite lines up with that as an objective. Uh, the second thing is I was always paranoid about what happens if your signal disappears. You know, you back tests to the moon, get all these nice little signals. You can use linear and non-linear techniques. You can bring AI into it. It could just evaporate. If you don't have a fundamental basis for why something works, I think it's really hard to put a lot of money behind it, in my view. And if you look at all quant funds across the space, I don't think they've been wildly good. You know, really a mixed bag in terms of the alpha generation and the accessory return generation. Renaissance themselves would admit that they have a range of performance profiles within their funds. And there's one particular fund that shot the lights out Seems to do it every year and it's capped, as you say. That's incredible. I don't know how they do it, whether it's you know the technology they have, the data they have, or the the information flow, maybe how quickly information is flowing. I don't know how they do it, but uh, you know, across the quantitative space, it didn't look to me like there was any particular edge of going in that direction versus the fundamental direction. And the advantage of going the fundamental direction, I could come into Orbis and I could look at a track record of eight percent gross alpha since inception. And I could look at a track record of 8% gross alpha since inception in the sister company, Alan Gray Limits in South Africa. And I could analyze that. What decisions had we made? On what basis? How had we delivered such ridiculously high excess returns over such a long period of time? And if I could learn that, right, then I've got something that's sustained, that should sustain. Why should it sustain? Because it's sustained for 50 years and it's based on, you know, the, the fear and greed of human beings and the fallibility of you know, the markets are not efficiently priced. We've seen that very clearly over the last four or five years with all the meme stocks and everything else that's gone on. And that's why it's interesting. That's why, you know, it keeps you, I, I also find it more interesting, right? Because you're, you know, you're looking at things more fundamentally, really trying to understand things from the axioms rather than data mining and then let the portfolio run and then tweak. That's a little bit less interesting to me. Now, you threw out misallocation there a minute ago. I was reminded of your 
thesis called the great misallocation. And I would like for you to share with us kind of that cycle that you define or describe in that article, because I think it's a great framework for a, more of a macro view, even though we're talking about value investing and micro things, but just having reminding ourselves that we do need a, probably an idea of the bigger picture to some degree and why things are happening the way they're, they're happening. And you've kind of developed this framework. Can you talk to us about the cycle that you've described here? Yeah. I mean, as you say, Trey, we're bottom up. So we look for mispricings from company to company, but it's interesting when you, you, know, you go through certain periods when we start seeing opportunities in similar businesses and similar stocks. And over the last sort of four or five years, maybe even longer, we were seeing much more opportunities in what we would describe as short duration businesses rather than the long duration businesses. Short duration businesses being ones that are generating a lot of free cash flow and paying it out. You're getting high dividend yields, high free cash flow yields, but they're not necessarily reinvesting those and growing very quickly. Um, but you know, if you look, if you put an IRR on that investment versus the intrinsic value of what we think the intrinsic value of that business, it was much higher than we were seeing on the other side in those long duration businesses where you know, there was an expectation for high free cash flow at some point in the future, but trading very, very high multiples. So the portfolio was skewing over to the short duration end. And essentially you think, why is that the case? Because we've seen it before. We saw it in the late 90s. We saw it in the Orbis portfolios in the late 90s. If you go back to 1973, if Alan had launched, not in South Africa, but in the US, I strongly suspect he would have been nowhere near that nifty 50 area. And he would have been in exactly the opposite and done wonderfully well for the next sort of decade as that unwound. Yeah, so we've seen it three times. And each of those periods, there was a, a commonality and that was the term premium. Term premium is not a commonly known, understood sort of thing. When I say term premium, it applies to like the bond world, like a 10-year treasury. People think of the yield curve and they say, well, term is time. Premium is the premium you get on the long yield versus a short yield. It's actually not, that's not the typical definition, or at least it's not the academic definition that comes from the central banks and whatnot who calculate this. Central banks are actually one of the core institutions that actually calculate this number. But I think it's really interesting variable. What it is, is the price of time. I call it the price of time. And now there's a book that's just come out by Edward Chancellor, who I think has been on your show as well. Uh, very smart chap. And I need to read this book. I'm waiting for the hardback to arrive in Bermuda. It's been very slow. It's all sold out. So it's obviously doing very well. But he terms the interest rate as the price of time. And there's a, you know, I think there's a good rationale for that. But I think of the price of time as more the term premium. Why is it the price of time? So if you get a 10-year yield on a bond, you can break that out into let's say three bits, it should embed expectations for the path of the real interest rate over time, right? Because if the real interest rate is expected to go up, you should you know, have a higher long yield because that the, the expectation for that should be embedded in that yield. It should also embed the expected inflation rate because this is a nominal asset. So you don't want to lose, be eaten up by inflation. So if it was being priced correctly, it should price in that inflation rate expectation as well. So a real yield expectation and an inflation rate expectation. But there should be an extra bit you get on top of that. And that bit is called the term premium. And the reason you should get that bit is because you're willing to hold the 10-year bond and not just sort of buy, because you could buy a one-year bond and roll it every year and you get the real rate move and you get the inflation expectation move. So if you're willing to hold the 10-year, you should get something a bit extra, right? You should get compensated for taking on time risk. That's real time risk. And the reason why you should get that is because the expected path of real rates isn't a path going back to this Taleb idea. Many thing, more things can happen than will happen. It's a distribution, right? Real rates could go through the roof 
Well, they could go negative. Inflation could go to 20%, or it could go to minus five, unlikely. You know, there's a distribution around these things. And so if there's, if there's uncertainty, and that's, um, that's basically taking time risk, stuff happens in time, you should get compensated. So that term premium should definitely be positive, in my opinion. And it's been positive the whole of history, but it's been negative for the last five years, which is absolutely crazy in my view, right? So you can point to that as a real inefficiency, real inefficiency in markets that this has gone negative. So the price of time has been negative. That's capitalism turned on its head. Now, if you go back to the late 60s, it was very, very low as well because you had financial repression after the Second World War and that lasted for a long period of time as they were trying to bring down the debt in real terms. And so that, I think, that low-term premium in the 60s contributed to this massive misallocation of capital in the late 60s which drove all the money into the new economy stocks. Why does it drive the money into the new economy stocks? Because if you're not pricing time or time is priced negatively, then a dollar in 10 years is actually maybe worth more than a dollar today, right? In, in this bizarre world of, of a negative term premium. So in that world, it's almost rational that you price you know, these growth or new economy stocks. And the new economy stocks in the 60s and the 70s were like the Xeroxes of the world, right? They were inventing the personal computer, they were the forefront of you know, all of these different innovations. They traded at 70, 80 times earnings. Now they were earning, so it wasn't crazy, crazy, but I mean, it was very, very punchy multiples. So that low term premium drove a big gap between the new economy and the old economy. The term premium was very low in the late 90s as well, after the Asian financial crisis, Greenspan cut rates aggressively and the term premium went very low. And I think that drove the tech bubble. And again, you see this big divergence. And we saw that obviously recently. Negative term premium, QE, massive QE all around the world. Every central bank you can think of, huge QE and uh, negative term premium, not even low, negative, phenomenal. Uh, and, and you get an even bigger dislocation in the market between new economy and old economy. So the way I think, that, you know, and, and what does that do? If the share prices are mispriced, then the management teams do all sorts of wonky things. Do they not? Because they, they act on the basis of their share price. If your share price is in the sky, that that's the market telling you, go out and grow, just go and throw money at stuff. You know, like if you're Netflix, just grow your subs. It doesn't really matter about what you earn. You know, if you grow your subs, you eventually dominate the whole world and charge what the hell you want, right? There's the narrative. And that has a massive distortionary effect on what management teams are doing because that management team decides to build their own content and just, you know, throw so much money at that. So because it's all, they can lose as much money as they want. They stop putting films through uh, theatrical release. They just sort of straight to their platform because any, any incremental sub, doesn't matter if they're giving up hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office, any incremental sub was worth more than that. Disney did the same. So you get, you see all these sort of perverse, I, I think perverse kind of capital allegation decisions through periods where the term premium goes negative. And that is bad for the economy, isn't it? And where we're seeing it, right? I mean, is in shortages, saw through COVID shortages in, in raw materials, um, on the energy side. On the metal side, you know, we've seen it to a fairly extreme degree, and that was happening before Ukraine kicked off. And I think we'll be, you know, continue over the next sort of five to ten years because the capex levels in primary energy is as low as we've ever seen, and so you, you know that leads to kind of a more inflationary dynamic, which is what we saw in the seventies and it's what we saw in the two thousands. We don't think of the 2000s as inflationary, but it was. Uh, we just had that big outsourcing of labor to China at the same time, which kind of balanced off. But you know, in terms of the commodity push through, it was quite an inflationary period. Inflation expectations were sort of above two and a half, three percent over that period. So it leads to it's like a it's a cycle because once it busts, once it breaks, we're in a we're in a sort of process of it breaking, you know, the it becomes self-sustaining. 
I mean, it's, it's a function of not having enough of what we need that drives inflation, that drives the term premium up, that drives rates up, and that drives the dislocations to close. We saw that through the 70s, through 73 to 1980, big dislocations closed through the, the 2000s. These big dis- and that was the birth of the hedge fund, right? The birth, birth of the hedge fund was 2000 to 2008 because they had so many inefficiencies to play with that, uh, you know, that industry boomed. They could charge whatever the hell they wanted. And then of course, once all the inefficiencies are closed, you know, they were in a bit of trouble. And, and so they've kind of waned over the last 10 years. You know, that's the natural cycle we're in. I think we're quite early in the cycle of that uh, unwinding. It just takes time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And it's interesting to hear you say it's bad for the economy, right? Because it seems like it's so great for the economy in the short term, but you see all these side effects. So we've referenced the 1950s a couple of times. It's reminding me of Morgan Housel, who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money. One of his great insights, in my opinion, is that he says, you know, why do we reflect on the 1950s as a sort of golden era? And not only are we reflecting back then, they knew it was sort of a golden era. There are these articles written about this might be the best time in history. You know, everything was kind of going great after this war and the the economy is growing. But his insight is that, you know, due to the highest tax rate being 91% and a few other things, there was actually not much of a wealth disparity like there is today. And so people's circumstance versus their expectations were, were more in line. And so since then, the income per household per capita in the US has gone up three times, but people are still feeling poorer than the 1950s because there is the asset inflation I think you're talking about that's been a result of these policies. It's separated the the circumstance from the expectation. So people have a, a better circumstance, but the expectation is so much greater <laughs> given these uh, wealth disparities. Very interesting. And, and I think, you know, what we'll start to see and what we've seen in these previous cycles is you start to see more of a labor a push to from, you know, the capital being the main driver and everyone focusing on that to more focus on labor policies. And I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner because, you know, your average voter should be really angry. Their real wages have been diminished for so long and it's just been especially over the last decade. And I think it's been covered up a little bit in the sense that, you know, you've had a kind of deflationary wave, partly as a result of money, free money getting thrown at businesses that are giving you free stuff, you know, free delivery of food and, and all the rest of it. And so you're, it feels like, you know, you've been, even though your, your wages haven't been going up, you've had a little bit of a free lunch, but that's sort of come to an end. And now we're kind of going into the period where I think yeah, you're going to start to see more union action and people can start demanding more in terms of raw wage, keeping up with inflation. And I don't think the politics, the central banks are sort of in tune with this. There was the leader of the the ECB, the, the English central bank, uh, came out and said, "Don't ask for a pay rise." You know, what, so it's all these bizarre dynamics going on. But I think we'll look back in five years. Look, this is more of a turning point in terms of real wages starting to rise in a more concerted way, which would be good. That's a positive. It's really positive for society. It's, you know, central banks worry about it as they think it might become unhinged. But if you run, you know, real wages negative, that's really corrosive for society as well. So you need that return to the power of labor versus capital, I think will be a big theme going forward. And because all of these countries are operating off the same currency type policies, it's, it's a global phenomenon we're seeing. And, and you mentioned there's different dynamics playing out. We're currently seeing China actually easing, for example, and, and opening up more as the US is actively tightening. And so I'm kind of curious because I'm so myopic on the US as I live here and I just focus on this market, but I know at Orbis, really where you guys have really shined are these international, global, and emerging strategies. So you're looking all over the world. And I'm kind of curious how you see someone like the US Fed's policies affecting the rest of the world and how it derives your strategies when you look at places outside the US. We try to be 
Uh, as we just talked you know, very broadly about these macro variables and the great misallocation cap, we do try to be very, very bottom up. And you know, that's critical. You know, you look at we launched our Japan strategy in 1998, and the topics has done three percent a year in yen. So in dollars, it would be even lower. You know, since that point, it's been awful, right? As an index investor outside of the US, where these big caps have drove drove the indexes high. But as a stock picker, it's you know, Alan used to love Japan because it just had so many niche opportunities of very, very discounted securities where we could go and meet with management teams and help them to understand you know, the capital allocation framework a little bit better and work with them to maybe improve some of the you know, decision-making, especially on the capital allocation side. And then you, you start to release some of this excess capital that's sitting on their balance sheet or improve some of their dividend policies or investment policies. And it's been fabulously successful that you know over long periods of time. And so you know you look at some of these indices and you think, well, you know, is there any return outside of the US? There is return. There's return in individual securities, massive inefficiencies. Now, does the interest rate environment affect it? You know, it affects everything because it's the price of money. You know, it's uh, it's so dominant as a variable in determining asset prices. And that's where we just have to weather those swings. And we just sort of say, okay, you know, we're owning this business with a sufficient margin of safety and sufficient discount to what we consider to be intrinsic value that actually through an interest rate cycle, whether interest rates go up next week or down next week, we feel fairly confident, right? And within a probabilistic framework that we are going to generate excess returns in this business over time. And, and that's the best we can do, right? Because these big macro variables are very difficult to predict. Everyone's looking at them. You know, what edge could you possibly have unless you're sitting there with Jay Powell and having a cup of coffee? That price of money you highlighted is, according to data you were writing about in this article, a different article, but you were saying about, you were talking about how the data shows the entire 2022 decline can be explained by just simply higher bond yields. I mean, I'm generalizing to a degree, but versus a, a few other factors, could you talk about what you were seeing in that and how you're kind of deriving what we saw in 2022 and how you're summarizing it? Well, it's, I mean, it is hard to disaggregate, but there's two, I mean, very simplistically, there's two ways you generate investment returns. One is earnings growth and the other is the change in the multiple on those earnings. And a change in the price, the cost of money should necessarily impact the multiple you pay for an earnings stream or a cash flow stream. So when the rate went up, you know, you'd know you expect to have a fall in the multiple. That's logical, uh, especially given markets sort of price off spot rates and nobody's really thinking in terms of, well, the term premium is running negative 1%. It's probably going to go to back to normal at some point, which means you've got to put another 2% on the, <laughs> on the long yield. Nobody's really thinking like that. Uh, so you get this, this change in the multiple on the basis of the change in the yield. Uh, on bonds and on that and on the interest rate, and I think I do think a large portion of the move, the fall in equities in 2022, could probably be attributed to that. You know, they, they should the and, and that's rational. And then it's now it's a question of well, what next? Do we see earnings reset to some lower level? I don't necessarily, or we don't necessarily worry about the ins and outs of the next quarter, the next year. We're going to see, you know, a recession or things going to get worse from here in terms of economic growth. What I would worry about more is structural changes. You know, if you look at the US, for example, margins are very high, you know, and that's a function, lower labor cost, lower tax rates, you know, lower interest cost, things that could change structurally. And if some of those things start to change, then margins will start to compress. And actually, you'll, you, you might see a longer term a more impactful margin reset in the US and earnings dropping and 
I mean, uh, again, this is a very, very broad argument. And we do look at things from business to business, so we don't worry too much about the, you know, these big picture dynamics. Talk to us a little bit about how 2022, although it was a very ugly year in the markets, was simply kind of wiping out some of the gains just from the year before. So what about the decade before? Just given the move in 2022, was it enough to determine a correction? Historically speaking, if we're comparing to other eras, is there further to go if you had to guess? Yeah, well, I think markets are still quite expensive. And again, yeah, if, you, if you have this this dynamic of the low-term premium, it just it, it leaves it leaves a, a shadow of froth, I would say. And it takes time for mindsets to kind of reset to a actually what is a more normal world. When you go back to the 70s, multiples are much, much lower than they are today. Much, much lower. And you know, that was normal then. And then when the inflation started to recede in the 80s, it took a long time for investors to kind of get over that that shadow of the previous decade. And I feel like, you know, we're gonna be in this phase where We've had free money for a long period of time, and, and that casts a shadow. People anchor to valuations they've seen over the last decade. Those aren't necessarily real. They might, they might be the aberration. And actually, you should be anchoring on you know, one of the other previous decades where you know, you're in a more normal monetary environment, for example, and a more normal labor environment as well. Maybe a more normal tax environment. All these things you've got to think about. So you could see, you know, I, I do think the last decade is not a good template for the next. But again, all these things depend on expectations. If everyone in the market believed that, then the prices would, would reflect. And then actually, you know, you might get a repeat of the last decade. I think it's not very likely. Yeah, there was some recent data actually showing that even though the last quarter in the US, the inflation was a little bit hotter, the consumer consensus was projecting the inflation to go down by to like 2.7, I want to say, if I'm going off memory, but was, even though the number came out a little higher than expected, the con- there's a disconnect between the consumers and the CPI, and some, which is kind of interesting that I don't find people discussing very often. But when we were talking about the price of money, when bond yields go up, growth stocks, usually the first or the I'd say the most affected from something like that, for the reasons you've kind of described. And you've put out some also some cool research around good and cheap companies and how they can still perform during bear markets. What have you seen in the data just as a, I guess, as sort of a, a general overview of how good and cheap are still, still persevere through times where markets can get ugly? I mean, you can use a classic example is the early seventies where, you know, you just wanted to be in reasonable, cheap businesses, uh, just away from the pizzazz as Alan used to call it, just get away from the areas that were everyone is pouring over. We like apathy here, we like areas that just, you know, they're not uh, in the spotlight because they are falling like a knife. They're not in the spotlight because they're, you know, the the next big thing. They're just not in the spotlight. Nobody's talking about them. Nobody's thinking about them. And that's where you start to see really interesting um, opportunities. And in bull markets and bear markets, Alike, you know, the bear market of the 70s, it was boring real economy businesses with high free cash fields that really excelled. If you didn't own those businesses, you did very poorly in real terms. In the 2000 to 2007 period, very similar. Uh, you know, that very, very wide dislocation. Just own a, a tedious retailer on 10 times earnings, you've done exceptionally well uh, from 2000 to 2006. And again, it looks very similar today. You know, we're finding businesses, you know, in a range of different sectors where you have good valuation underpin, which could be the yield, right? You get repeated, maybe you're getting five, six, seven percent dividend yield. So not a free cash flow yield, dividend yield. So they have more cash that they could pay. 
they want to do. And that's the, that's the margin of safety. But that dividend yield growing in inflation like rates. So if you've got like a 5% dividend yield and a 4% inflation like growth, you've got 9% off the bat. And is 9% that bad in this market? It's probably quite good, especially a good sort of solid 9% like that, where your growth rate's pretty predictable and your dividend yield is high. And then if you can pick those up with massive optionality on top, where you know there's two or three things that could happen that lead to you know not your 9%, but more like 40, 50% upside, then you know, you have a very asymmetric situation where your downside is very low. Your upside, you know, especially if you can get a lot of these different options in your portfolio, and that comes back to the Kelly criterion, your know, little tiny little edges left, right, and center in the portfolio. And that, I think that you know, that's kind of where we're positioned today in, that, in those types of opportunities. And you are physically positioned in Bermuda. You were referring to Alan describing pizzazz, right, with these markets. And I'm reminded of Buffett moving back to Omaha to kind of get away from the noise. Do you find that being physically in Bermuda similarly helps you keep distance? I mean, even though you're so close to New York and some other, you know, obviously markets, does it help you kind of keep a clear mind uh, looking out at the stars as we described earlier? Nah, it's fabulous. Really is. Um, there's, there's very few places like it because you almost want to be in a library-like atmosphere. So you can just think and develop a view, independent view. You can read, you know, you're not sort of surrounded by different opinions being sort of thrown at you, you left, right, and center. Um, but if, you know, to be in those types of environments, it's almost like you're out in the country or something. Now it's, now it's easier in the modern world of remote working to sort of, so Bermuda isn't so unique anymore. Uh, but in terms of having, um, a good, solid financial center in a very, very small place that's hugely efficient and convenient. So if I want to get to work, I can walk five minutes, pop and see my kids at school doing a, a sports day. You know, everything is so efficient and so no time is wasted. No, it's not a minute. <laughs> you know, I'm doing, every minute I spend, I'm either doing something productive or I'm enjoying my family. You know, these are, if you're living in big city with all the noise, it's hard. It is harder to focus. Also, it's inefficient, right? You've got a lot of commute. You know, getting from place to place is really difficult. I do love London, love New York. It's big cities. They've got a buzz about them, but I, I don't love living there. Well, Graham, this was so much fun. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing a bit more about your philosophies and strategies here. I really hope we can do this again. Thank you for the book references as well. We'll provide them in the show notes. Before I let you go, is there any other resources where people can go to to find more about you or Orbis or Alan Gray or any any other resources you want to share before we go? Uh, thanks, Trey. I, uh, it was a lovely discussion. In terms of resources, as I said earlier, we are we have very little social media presence. We are you know reclusive, I would say. But if you go to the Orbis website, www.orbis.com. And you can choose any region you want on that website and you can get all of this sort of information on the funds. And one thing I should have mentioned was that one thing that Alan was passionate about was almost sort of democratizing investment. Because, you know, if you are an ordinary person, right, you're working in some field, um, you need advice, right? You need advice and handholding when it comes to your, you know, your finances. And one of the issues with the industry, in my opinion, is the layers of fees you pay to get that advice. You know, you've got the advice and then you've got the actual fees you pay on. So Alan was a big believer in direct, going direct to a firm to you know, go to the website and you can invest directly. Now you can't do that in all regions based on what we have at the moment, but uh, it is our plan over the long term to develop that ability with new clients to have uh, a much more frictionless 
way to, to invest in excess return strategies. And so if you go to the website, there's a lot of information around Orbis and uh, both on the institutional and the retail side. Well, Graham, I really appreciate the time. Thanks again. Thanks, Trey. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.